Hello, this is Dr. David Friedman, host of To Your Good Health Radio. We all rely on our immune system to protect us and keep us from getting sick. But what happens when your immune system malfunctions or rather than protecting you, it begins attacking you? Our next guest, Dr. Joe Carnahan, knows this topic very well. As a survivor of breast cancer, Crohn's disease, and toxic mold illness, she discovered the blueprints to attaining optimal health. She's now on a mission to help others combat and thrive through complex and chronic illnesses. She's here today to share some great insights from her number one best-selling book, Unexpected. If you've been frustrated going from doctor to doctor to no avail, it's time to get off that hamster wheel. Dr. Jill is in the house to show you how you can find resilience through functional medicine, science, and faith. Don't go anywhere. It all starts now. It's To Your Good Health Radio with number one best-selling author and renowned wellness expert, Dr. David Friedman, changing lives just for the health of it. Our next guest is an expert in functional medicine that specializes in finding the root cause of illness and addressing nutritional and biochemical imbalances. She's a duly board certified physician experienced in family and integrative holistic medicine. She is the medical director at Flatiron Functional Medicine, a widely sought after practice with a broad range of holistic clinical services. She's a speaker, teacher, and writer spreading her message of hope health, and healing worldwide. Her work has been featured in many media outlets, including NBC News, Shape Magazine, People, Forbes, Mind, Body, Green, and the Huffington Post. Welcome to the show, author of the book, Unexpected, Finding Resilience Through Functional Medicine, Science, and Faith, Dr. Jill Carnahan. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Friedman. I'm delighted to be here with you. So great that you could join us. You know, I've been following your work for a while now, and I got to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed your new book, Unexpected, but of course, that's something I expected. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. <laughs> so, yeah, share with us first, what inspired you to write this great book? So interesting. The book is part of my journey, and you know, so many colleagues and friends and people have written wonderful blueprints and roadmaps of different things like fighting autoimmune disease and all the different stuff that we deal with as physicians and as patients. But I really realized that story is the connective tissue between humanity. And I very reluctantly, I really wanted to write a book about environmental toxicity and how it affects our health and very science-based, you know, all that referenced and everything. And I kept getting this intuitive word. I needed to share my story. And so in the end, it really came down to me sharing my journey through cancer, Crohn's disease, autoimmune illness, and mold-related illness, because what my hope was in sharing that was that other people, the reader, could see themselves in the journey. So the joke is it's not really about me. It's really a reflection, hopefully, of the reader and their experience and their journey. And I find the deeper we share on personal levels of our struggles, our difficulties, whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual, the more we are relatable and the more. And so I became very vulnerable in this book and writing this book with the hopes that I could connect with the reader. Well said. You know, I know there's so many people suffering from conditions out there, many considered, quote, incurable by their doctor. And you experienced this personal conquest with the two big C's you mentioned, Crohn's and cancer. Those are biggies. How did your experience as a patient shape your approach as a doctor when dealing with chronic conditions? 
Wow. And I love how you said the big two C's. I've never heard it that way, but it's absolutely true. (laughs) You know, it's interesting because I went into medical school and I I grew up on a farm. So kind of a holistic, wholesome upbringing. My mother was a retired nurse, retired to raise those five children. We had a half acre garden and we raised fruits and vegetables and we still went to the doctor, but I had a primary chiropractor as a kiddo, you know, and like we had very much holistic mindset. So I grew up knowing that the body could heal, knowing that food was medicine and kind of under understanding that there was more than just medications and surgery. But as I got out of medical school and applied to professional schools, I realized, wow, we need a shift in medicine. And so I went into conventional medical school with this mindset of wanting to do a more holistic model. And then the big two C's hit. And it's funny because I never would have ask for the professor cancer and the professor Crohn's. But what happened in the journey was these became some of the greatest teachers of my life because in my third year of medical school, at the age of 25, I was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of breast cancer. And all of a sudden I went from medical students, you know, pre-med, pre-doctor to patient. And I learned a lot more in that experience than any textbook could teach me. One of the things I really learned was what kind of doctor do I want to be? And I saw doctors that were absolutely amazing that put everything down and sat and listened and really connected and helped me on my journey. And I saw others that didn't do that. And I really was aware that there's a difference in how we practice medicine because that's where the healing starts, that connection, that giving hope, that listening. If a patient doesn't trust their doctor, I don't think there's any amount of medication that can overcome that distrust. Yeah, that's so well said. You know, you've definitely turned your mess into your message. And I think being on the other side of the table, I think it does help. You know, it's so funny when, when I'm at doctor's offices, I sit and I look around and I go, yuck, what do they get out on the wall floor? I go, wait a minute, I think I do too. It's like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm seeing it from a different set of eyes. And it's like, you know, he comes in, you know, 45 minutes to an hour late. And, you know, it's like, didn't apologize, didn't say anything, didn't acknowledge it. And I'm like, you know, I need to acknowledge it when I walk in. It's, it's so good to see that other side and how you get treated and how you cared for. So kudos for that. I think that that is a good life lesson. One of the quotes that you have in your book, I love this. It says, incurable doesn't mean healing is not possible. It simply means there is not a drug that reverses the condition. And this is so true. In reality, does big pharma really want a drug that cures something, which means no longer bringing them in money? Yeah, it's a dichotomy, isn't it? Such an interesting way because when we really understand drugs are amazing, they do life saving things in so many instances, but they are not a cure to most complex chronic disease of which we're living in an epidemic of. So, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease. Drugs can maybe stave off damage, but none of those things cure. And I came face-to-face to to this when I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease just six months after I finished all of my treatment for cancer. And there's a connection there because all of that chemotherapy and treatment for cancer created a much more damaged and permeable gut. And then I had a genetic predisposition, a gene called NOD2, that made me extra reactive on the immune side to my normal microbiome contents. So I think it makes perfect sense that it was like the storm that triggered me into Crohn's. All of a sudden, I was having cyclical fevers after my chemo. I just thought it was because of the chemotherapy and I was just getting recovered. And then I realized something else was going on when I passed out in the ER and ended up, I was actually working in the ER, passed out myself, ended up in emergency surgery and woke up to a surgeon telling me, Jill, you have Crohn's disease. 
And the follow-up with my gastroenterologist just a week or so later was so telling because he said, Jill, this is incurable. You're going to have it forever, lifelong. You're probably going to need immune-modulating drugs throughout your life. You're likely to need surgery or colonic resection of your colon during that time. Then I, right before I left, I thought, well, do I have any agency? And I asked him, I'll never forget. I said, doc, does diet have anything to do with this? And he did not pause. He said, Jill, diet has nothing to do with this. And that was a real shift in my mind and heart because even though I didn't have a ton of training, I didn't have a lot of nutritional training, and I didn't really know, on the inside, my intuition said, that can't be true. And I went on to kind of prove him wrong because I did find out that diet had a massive effect. And today, 20 plus years later, I no longer have Crohn's disease. Wow. You know, as I mentioned when we before the show began, I too was a sufferer of Crohn's. And you said something that you said these six words that I heard. And it really got under my skin. It's when I was diagnosed, we don't know why you have it. You just have it. You're going to have to, you've got removed 85% chance and you're going to be on this biologic. And here's the six words for the rest of your life. And it hit me. I said, what? You're not going to be able to get rid of this for the rest of my life. And this was 14,000 a shot. You know, this stuff's expensive and I had no insurance. So I'm struggling and I've shared my story on the show before, but it really, it was a, I wake and I says, no, I will not. And that was my words. Those six words motivated me to find out what caused it. And through environmental toxin relief, I cured my Crohn's. And of course, it's, I hate using the word cure because I still get occasional little flare-ups here, but you know, I beat it. I'm in remission against the will and the folks at Duke telling me I had to have my colon removed and I had to go on that intivia. So, you know, I'm with you there. Those six words, that was such a fuel for me. It's like, you don't care what caused it. Just cut out and get on this drug forever. Yes, I so relate. Same story because that when the doctor's like, there's no hope, you're going to have this forever, this is incurable. And the truth is you and I both, I totally believe like you that I'm cured. I do not have flares. I do not have symptoms. I'm not on medication. And like you said, when we go to the root cause of all of these triggers and antecedents and mediators that create that inflammation, yes, you and I might have a proneness, like a genetic predisposition that makes us a little higher risk. And I found not just me, but I have hundreds of patients I've seen since then with inflammatory bowel that have the same story that are now either in cure or remission. And I love that you mentioned some people get angry when I say that. And I bet you've had the same thing because they've been told by their doctor. And if there is a cure, what does that mean for them? Does that mean there's something else they could be doing? And I don't want to make anyone at fault for not doing more, but there is hope and there is healing. And that agency is actually what transforms our health when we choose to do something different. Yeah. And plus you've got that fear that if you don't get this, you could die. You could have perfect, you know, they scare you into into getting this. And, and majority people say, okay, you're my doctor or whatever you say. And it's, Thankfully, there's people getting smarter now. They're saying, wait a minute, I'm looking in the mirror. That's the doctor I got to trust. There's some stuff I got to do on my own. That reflection is going to guide me. And I love that people taking their health in their own hand. We need doctors, but a lot of times you can't just say, okay, whatever you say. I got to share this. I hit a lady. She said, I'm not going to be able to come in for a few months. I'm getting surgery. I said, oh, what are you getting? She says, I don't know. I'm just having some stomach problems and they're operating. I said, well, what are they doing? What are they, I don't know. It's, yeah, I'm not the doctor. What do I care? I'm like, you don't know what he's going in. Oh, and my. This is how trusting they are. And you <laughs> and me are like, wait a minute. I'm Googling that. I want to find out this, sir. I want to find out if you're good. I want to know the background. And she was so trusting. It's like, what do I care? That's his job. 
<laughs> so it's, it's, it's great that people are starting to wake up and say, you know, I kind of got to take my health in my own because we are our best doctor. You know, we are, and we need doctors after that. But, you know, we really need to work on our food, our lifestyle, and environmental toxins, which one thing I want to mention, the environmental toxins you mentioned even in your book, it can be so overwhelming. Is there one in particular that you consider public enemy number one, that invisible toxin that causes the most detriment when it comes to our health? Oh, that's a tough question. I just feel like the elephant in the room is our environmental toxic load. And so if you're listening out there and you're like, well, I just feel like I'm aging faster, I wake up more achy, or there's a really good chance that the toxins that I always say, it's the, it's clean air, clean water, clean food at the core to start to get a handle on this. And so you may be unknowingly breathing air that has toxins in it. That's super common. And more and more, one of my leaders in teaching, Walter Crinian said 80% of our environmental toxic load is from the air that we breathe, which surprised even me back then. And now I realize how true it is. And then the water, if we're not drinking clean water, so often it's contaminated in Colorado, the state where I live. They just found PFA levels, polyfluorinated compounds that come from like Gore-Tex and Teflon waterproofing. It's contaminated in every water supply that they checked, all the public water supply. And these are forever chemicals that scientists can't even calculate the half-life. So they're going to be around for decades, if not hundreds and thousands of years. We just, they're there. And so we've contaminated our water supply. So we really need to make sure we're drinking filtered water. There's no more safety in tap water anymore. And then clean food and food supply also is becoming more and more contaminated. So if we're not consciously, you said earlier, like that consciousness of a patient, not just blindly trusting, but being aware and asking questions. It's the same way with the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the food that we eat. We need to start being very conscious about that because that's where true health starts. Yeah. And you bring trusting up. I get people, I mentioned the water filter. They go, well, it's, I get my tap water. They take care of that. They've got EPA. They got the scientists that come and making sure it's clean. I'm like, you really believe that? They really do. They think that it's been inspected. They've come in with their microscopes. Okay, all clear. Exactly. <laughs> that's what, but I'm glad you brought up water because that's how I got my autoimmune disease. DuPont dumped the toxic chemical in my city's water supply and it took forever for me to find it. And I'm curious, what percentage, you know, autoimmune is so high now. What percentage of autoimmune disease disorders have you found to be connected to a toxin overload? Oh, that's a, such a good question. Well, we know from the triad, which is genetics, which we can't, I mean, we can change the expression of genes, but we can't really change what we've been dealt. That's one of the triad. The other component is that gut immune interface, which is why the, the chemo and the leaky gut and the Crohn's are so connected. But the third thing is environmental trigger. So 100% of autoimmunity has an environmental trigger. Now, you asked specifically about environmental toxins, and I would guess maybe 70, 80% is environmental toxins on some level. The other 20% could be food like gluten or maybe some internal. We think about exotoxins like metals and parabens and phthalates and mold and mycotoxins and all of these things that come in from the outside. And those are certainly toxic load. But what a lot of people don't know or realize or even think about is internally, we have these endotoxins. So if we have a bacterial overgrowth in our gut, we might have endotoxins from lipopolysaccharides, or we might have acetylaldehyde from a yeast overgrowth, or we might have excessive hormones if we have PCOS, or we might have, so we can actually have, so I'd guess maybe 20, 30% is internal sources, and the other 70, 80% is external. But any of those, we know from the triad from Dr. Fasano that one third of that for autoimmunity is environmental triggers. So it's there almost all the time. 
Yeah, I agree. We're right on target there. I think it's about 70, 80% because our great-grandparents didn't deal with this. Why are we, everyone's got autoimmune now. Something's triggering this. It can't be the food that our great-grandparents ate. It has to be something being done to our food or the packaging or the cooking in the containers or even the glyphosate. What's your opinion on that? That's a big thing that, you know, gluten intolerance, a lot of it could be linked to the, the glyphosate. Do you agree with that? Oh, 100%. So glyphosate is used still heavily in the US, Europe and Mexico and some other countries have banned it. So it's actually not always being used. It's just in our country, we haven't realized and it really disrupts the soils. And so it depletes, it's a mineral chelator. So we have plants that are being grown with glyphosate that have a lot less mineral content. A lot of the wheat in the U.S. is desiccated, meaning right before harvest, they kind of kill it with glyphosate because it allows them to go with the combines and machinery to pick that up easier. But what that means is right before harvest, it's sprayed heavily with glyphosate. So pretty much all commercial processed food that uses wheat is going to have a heavy level of glyphosate in it. And then glyphosate in our gut as we consume it affects our microbiome very dramatically. Monsanto did a lot of tests specifically on glyphosate and cells in the human body. And they were like, well, it doesn't really affect our cells. But what they didn't do is do the test on our microbiome because it preferentially kills things like lactobacillus, some of our good probiotics, and it allows other things like uh, clostridia to proliferate and create more inflammation and damage through the gut. So in multiple ways, and we've now seen associations with higher risk, like you mentioned, of celiac and gluten intolerance, of food allergies, of leaky gut, even cancers like leukemias and lymphomas. Right. I know it seems like whole grains have become the most ostracized food, yet, as I mentioned, our grandparents did have issues like we do today. Are grains really to blame, or should we focus more on our gut's inability to digest them? Ooh, I love your area of questioning. So my thought is, you're right, because paleo diets are grain-free by nature, and they've become very popularized. And as you and I see in clinical practice, they actually work pretty well for some people. So then the question is, why would a grain-free diet, these are good, and if you look at the blue zones, which are the top five or six areas, Dan Buettner's done the research on where people live, centenarians live over 100, every one of them has a food source that's either grain or high starch. So it's kind of counter intuitive to what us in America are doing, these paleo and keto diets. My thought is grain, especially corn, even rice, are some of the most highly contaminated with molds and mycotoxins and glyphosate. So I think we're back to your original hypothesis. Is it toxic load? And is it just the grains are so contaminated that they affect us? I think it's more the mycotoxins and chemicals on the grains than the grains themselves. I do too. People say, you know, I used to be able to eat a bunch of pizza, no problem. And now one, two bites, you feel like crap. Did the pizza change? I don't know if the pizza's changed. I think it's just our gut's ability to digest it. Like you said, I think we're being toxic. Such toxins just eat up our microbiome. Let me ask you this. Are there any particular foods that people should eat more of that maybe can help detoxify their body from the daily bombardment of these toxins? Oh, great question. There's a couple categories and I'm probably missing because there's so many things we can do with food, but polyphenols, so colorful fruits and vegetables, we've all heard this, are so powerful antioxidants. So getting organic, locally sourced whenever possible, berries and fruits and vegetables in season is really important. Leafy greens, things like bok choy, arugula, spinach, celery, and beets are all really high in nitrates, which convert 
in our microbiome to nitric oxide, which is the thing that keeps our blood vessels open and our health wonderful into our 70s and 80s. We decrease production of nitric oxide by 50% over the age of 40. So a critical way to keep that up is to maintain that leafy vegetables and greens and making sure they're from as local as possible, organic whenever possible, and getting good sources of these. So really plant-based foods, even though I still eat meat and I find some of us who've had gut issues in the past do not do great on a vegetarian diet, although some patients do. I still feel like for me, a little bit of fish, especially fish and chicken can be powerful. But no matter who you are, I'm still a huge proponent of a plant-based diet as being really, really critical, even if you're eating meat, because the plants are where the nutrients, the polyphenols and nitric oxide precursors and all these wonderful things come from. Yeah, it was my biggest frustration. I get people on here with the carnivore, just eat meat, stay away from grains and fruit and vegetables. And I'm like, really? Apples are bad. Stay away. I'm like, and I had one guy that was against all fruit. He said, fruit's the cause of disease. It causes cancer, causes pain. I said, fruit? So I'm with you. It's like, you know, I think these excessive diets that just ram, like you've got to just eat raw liver now is a big one. Right. Now, right? <laughs> oh my God. Yuck. Right. right. I know. <laughs> well, I think what's happened is the gut gets so, I, I have seen you and I know with Crohn's and colitis, the gut can be so inflamed. And sometimes, especially when you have massive permeability, you throw in grains or some of these things, even fruits and vegetables, or you have overgrowth of bacteria, those things make you feel worse because they're creating inflammation and the lipopolysaccharide bacterial codings cross over into the immune system. So taking them out, people end up feeling better. But what happens is they're not really healing the root cause, which is the leaky gut or the bacterial overgrowth. So yes, a lot of people who are sick with SIBO or CIFO, these bacterial or fungal overgrowths, go on a carnivore diet or go on a keto diet and they feel amazing because they're not feeding those abnormal overgrowths. But if they would go to the root cause and actually get rid of the problem, then they could go back to eating a diverse, healthy, microbiome-friendly diet because long-term, low FODMAP carnivore keto diets will actually starve the healthy microbiome that we need long-term to prevent autoimmunity. So true. And I know you cringe when you see all these little short videos and social media saying just, you know, beef's all we need. Eat like a caveman. And of course, in my book, I debunked that because cavemen ate <laughs> mostly fruits, vegetables, and grains. It's like, well, where you, where's your research? It's the paleo. They didn't have access to animals. It was so much easier just to reach down and grab the fruits and the, and the plants. So but I'm a big fan of cilantro, which has been shown to detoxify heavy metals and perfluorinated compounds. But sadly, some people have this gene receptor that makes cilantro taste like soap. So I guess when they cussed as kids, their parents probably washed their mouth out with cilantro. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and I love the emergent herbs. I didn't even mention that, but rosemary, thyme, cilantro, parsley. There's so many of these like herbs and spices that are absolutely powerful for detox. Even milk thistle, which we can use as tea. So I really love that you mentioned that because that's a critical part of detox. And of course, controversial topic would be coffee. Let me get your tip on that. I know it's it's pros and cons. Some people say it destroys the microbiome. Uh, It creates peristalsis, which is bad for people with gut problems, but others say it's great. What's your view on Java in the morning? Oh, I love this question. I have taught gut research and gut health for 20 years. And the real data shows that polyphenols from coffee, which is actually 
sadly for Americans, one of the primary sources of their polyphenols, because a lot of Americans aren't getting their fruits and vegetables, so they're getting it from coffee. So first thing is, back to environmental toxic load, many batches of coffee and much of the coffee that we purchase is loaded with pesticides and loaded with mycotoxins. So the first thing is, if you're brewing coffee that is not certified clean and clear of chemicals, toxins, pesticides, mycotoxins, you're literally brewing those chemicals into that morning cup of java. So that is an absolute no-go. So I'd rather have you not have coffee at all if you're not going to drink clean or certified coffee that is tested for these things. Now, let's say we have a clean source. The evidence supports liver health, metabolic health. So there are hundreds of studies on protection of liver, health, protection of diabetes, protection of even cardiovascular disease. And part of this is because the polyphenols in coffee and chocolate, which is another of my favorite food groups, <laughs> those polyphenols feed the microbiome to create fermentation and create short chain fatty acids like butyrate. And we are now finding more and more and more evidence for mood disorders, for cardiovascular disease, for general health overall. And these production of short chain fatty acids and the crucial role that they play. So for that reason, I feel like coffee can be part of a healthy diet. The caveats are clean coffee. And if your cytochromes, your phase one liver enzymes are very slow, then you don't process that caffeine quickly and it could affect sleep. It could create anxiety. Most people know as a teenager or college student, when they have their first cup of coffee, if it, they drink it at 10 a.m. and they're up at you know 10 p.m. still wired, they're not going to be the kind of people who do well with drinking coffee. So the first thing is, how fast are your cytochromes? And you know this, to, you know when you drink a cup of coffee, if four to six hours later you can fall asleep, no problem. That's a pretty average, normal. I'm a fast metabolizer, so I can still drink coffee at five o'clock at night and sleep fine. But as I get older, it affects me more and more. So knowing your cytochrome speed, and again, just drinking coffee, you can kind of know that of how it affects you, making sure you have a clean source. But if those caveats are in place, I think coffee can be an amazingly healthy antioxidant. Yeah, now you got a lot of coffee drinkers, probably some drinking right now as they're listening to this saying, well, how do I know if it's clean? What's a clean source? What, what do they look for? USDA certified organic? What do they, what do they look for to, to, to feel safe drinking the Java? Yeah, so I certainly have a few brands. I won't mention any names, but I will say that you can ask your manufacturer or where you get your coffee. If they're not actually testing and they can give you third-party verification, then don't get it. I will say single estate original kind of fair trade. Like if you know this comes from this one estate in Honduras and it's a single estate and they maybe aren't wealthy enough to get the organic certification, but they don't use any chemicals. You really need to know your grower. And it's funny because we think back to our grandparents, you know what they did is they either grew their own food or they knew their neighbors and they traded food and they always knew the source of their food. And with coffee, that's really the important thing is you need to know the source. If you just buy the stuff that's on the corner, like from Starbucks, you're not getting a great product. Yeah, I love that. Knowing the source, I tell people that too. Same with nutritional products. Go and see who the CEO is. Read the story, vision. See if he's, he went and flew there and holding up the plant. I mean, this is passion. And same with wines. You know, it's like if they're a state that loves their wine and they've been around as a family estate, probably a good source there. You know, in France, and you know if they've got their their family signature on there, that that signature means something. 
You know, they're not going to scrimp on that. So I, I love that that you're saying, you know, learn, learn. It's not that foolproof, but it's good to know that know the source. Interesting. While reading your book, there's a 21 letter word that jumped out at me that has never been uttered by any guest that I've interviewed in 28 years on this show. Ready? Psycho neuroimmunology. The study of the- <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I've never said that. 21 letter word, the study of the mind's influence on health and disease. And you stated that for many conditions, including breast cancer, the mind has this highest influence on our health. Share with us the power of getting a checkup from the neck up. Oh, I love this. So I um, trained in bioengineering. and I am the most left-brain analytical person you'll meet as far as in my background, right? And what I did, what I realized is sometimes that analytical mind is almost a cover-up or coping mechanism with our bodies. And when I look back, I'm going through, I got married at 21, inherited three stepchildren, beautiful family. And while I was just married and in medical school, raising three children, I mean, I had so much stress and so many things and it was all good. It wasn't a horrible thing, but it was massive, massive load. And what I did was I suppressed the needs of my body in order to you know, get through medical school and accomplish what I wanted to accomplish and raise the family and everything. And in order to do that, I really had to, from the neck down, say, shut up, body. I need to work. Don't be bothering me. Don't be giving me signals that I need to take care of you. I've got to move forward. I've got to accomplish my goals. And by doing that, I learned to dissociate from my body, from my feelings, from my, you know, if there was, you know, chest discomfort or shoulder pain or stomach ache. And I really believe that my breast cancer at 25 and my Crohn's at 26 were kind of wake-up calls of my body saying on a metaphorical level, hey, Jill, we kind of need you to pay attention to us because if you keep driving us at this pace, we're not going to make it. And I now see that more clearly. Now, certainly, I had genetics, I had toxic exposure. So there was a very real physical component. But what I realized then is as we get back in touch, so after 40, after my divorce, I started really listening to my body and starting to heal that way. And this is where psychoneuroimmunology comes in because our mind, our belief systems, our ability to connect with our somatic system and feel like pain is a gift. If you look at leprosy, it is the absence of the the infection affects the nerves and so they don't feel pain and so they lose limbs, fingers, eyesight, and all of that happens because they don't have the gift of pain to tell them, to signal them when something is wrong. When they touch a hot fire, they don't even notice and their finger gets infected and they lose it. And because of that, I really started to realize this mind is a powerful tool, but if we aren't listening to our body and our signals we miss the signals and then we end up dealing with illness. And this psychoneuroimmunology goes both ways. The way I'm talking about right now is the signal from our body, from our somatic organs to our brain saying, hey, something's not quite right here. Can you give me some love and attention and help us figure out what's going on? But it also goes the other way. The other way is when we believe that we can heal, part of my healing was that I always believed I could heal. Like from Crohn's, they told me it was impossible. Cancer, they told me it was a potentially fatal diagnosis. But inside, somewhere deep inside me, I believed that it was possible to heal. And that's the opposite direction where our belief, our ability to believe for something greater or ask ourselves what else is possible can actually, through the chemicals that our brain produces and changing the immune system, again, this is through cytokines, chemicals, both directions, can actually change our physiology. 
Yeah, so true. Mindset's just so crucial. I, I remember interviewing John Tesh and Scott Hamilton on the show, and both were diagnosed with aggressive terminal cancer, given literally just months to live. And they both said, interesting, like almost verbatim, that their positive outlook and maintaining a sense of humor played a key role in beating the deadly disease. So I think that if we, you know, oh, I'm the victim and I'm going to die, I think you're programming. Oh, you're listening to yourself. You've got to be positive. And one thing I remember, this just brought this to mind. There was a study, the person was diagnosed with terminal cancer given six months to live and i don't know how they do it doc these doctors got it right in about a little over six months he died he got his affairs in order like he was told autopsy showed they misdiagnosed this man he did not have cancer his mind body soul spirit was prepared to die and this man died it shows you the power of what we are told the mind is so powerful of healing or killing us correct it could work both ways it is. And the real key to this, this is a pearl for your listeners. And this is something I learned in my 40s. It took me a long time. Our subconscious mind, which is always chewing on the data that we give it, it's almost like just a, a it's going to sound silly, but like a pet dog or something. It will take instructions and fulfill them. So the key is how do we get to that subconscious mind? Usually it's repetition and emotion. So if we feel a joy like I'm going to have. So let me give you an example because this may be really esoteric. Say I get breast cancer. I'm just told I have breast cancer at 25. But in my quiet meditation time, I am thinking about when I'm 60 and have children and grandchildren and I'm living a vibrant life skiing on mountains and I'm literally feeling the joy of that cold air rushing against my face and the swish of my skis on the mountain and seeing my family surrounding me. And so I have that emotion of joy and happiness and fulfillment and I'm actually visualizing that. And literally that visualization of what my future is goes right into the subconscious and the subconscious doesn't know any better it's just like oh we're going to live till 60 okay all right let's make that happen and then it goes about fulfilling to the best of its ability now nothing's perfect but if we really really but through repetition and emotion get those messages that we are going to survive that we're going to thrive that we can overcome and that we're going to live a long and healthy life our subconscious has no choice but to fulfill it and I've seen that over and over again. Now, the trick, like I said, is if we have doubt and fear and those overcome us and the true subconscious is afraid, well, then we might fulfill fear. It's not always easy. This sounds really simple and you really have to program that subconscious mind, but it's a powerful ally. And I've seen it over and over again. The belief, the belief in what is possible is a huge driver to healing. Yeah. You remind me, we had a guest on once that had terminal cancer and he would go to bed, shut his eyes and visualize Pac-Man eating up the cancer. And he actually got a picture of it. He wanted to know what it looked like. So in his mind, he could visualize that cancer being eaten up and he survived. And he really believes that played a big role. I think that the body has such, I think it's beyond what we can conceive of the body's power. It really is. I don't think we can, I don't even, we have a small grasp on it. And you mentioned intuition in your book. Is, is that similar? What role does harnessing our inner intuition play in health? Yeah. So you and I both have an example we, we shared earlier in the show here. And that was when the doctor told us it's incurable. We have to do this lifelong surgery. There was this little inkling inside of our souls that said, that doesn't seem right. Or maybe I could overcome this, or maybe that's not true even though the medical doctor who is the authority in front of us telling us that's not possible, you're going to need drugs, you're going to need surgery, you might die of this, it's forever. We both had this intuition. And for me, it wasn't like backed on 20 studies from JAMA, the main scientific journal, right? It was literally just this intuitive sense that I felt, huh, I wonder what else is possible. And I talk about it in the book because I was trained as an engineer, a 
a scientist in medicine, medicine really, really encourages using science. And I love science. It's one of my allies in finding data and finding the right choice of treatment or plan. But if we only stay in the scientific rational mind to make decisions, we miss a lot because I always compare it, the left brain scientific rational mind is more like an old analog computer. It can chug along and do maybe thousands of pieces of data. But if we involve the intangible, that sense of feeling, you all know it. If you walk into a room and there's been an argument, you walk into that room and you just sense the tension. And you can't put your finger on it. No one's told you that. But you intuitively sense, ugh, this doesn't feel good. Or you walk into a dark alley and you're like, ah, oh, there's something not right. You turn around and walk away. Those are intuitive senses. And what it is is actually data points from your subconscious, your maybe hearing, your sight, your sound, your sense of prickling on the you know hairs of your skin. And if you trust that, that intuition can actually give you data. It's much more like a supercomputer that can take millions of pieces of data within microseconds and analyze it, but it goes right past your your rational mind. So sometimes we doubt it and we second guess it, but it, it's actually a powerful source of information if we start to trust it and hone in on it. Well said. So we follow this. I've got a, it's called the DIG method whenever I'm looking at anything and I wrote about it. It's uh, D-I-G, discoveries, that's the science, intuition, and then God. And that's your faith. And you, you put those three and it's not, it's a three wheel. It has to have all three wheels. And by doing that, you can find out, is this true? Is that true? You just trust your intuition, look at the discoveries, but if they're biased, you've got to cross them out. They've been paid for. So it's really cool. Let me ask you this. I know a lot of people are hearing, you know, that you and I, we find out we were toxic and all that. How do they know this? Is there blood test that you recommend the average person should have to get a gauge point to where they are health-wise? Because let's face it, a lot of doctors roll their eyes. My GI doctor said, could it be the water? Could it be toxic? He rolled his eyes. No, he had no interest in testing me. What can they do? So right now, your average general practitioner doesn't either know or have access to the test that would test for this. You can get a standard metal profile in any conventional lab, like LabCorpQuest or your hospital lab, and it would be like mercury, arsenic, lead, cadmium. But a blood serum level is going to tell recent, like last three months or so of exposure. The best test for things like cadmium is actually urine. So you really have to have a doc who knows where to test. The type of tests that I do, so if you find a functional or integrative practitioner, you can get a urine profile from labs like Vibrant or Mosaic or even Genova. There's about three big labs that do a panel that will screen you in the urine. And again, it's going to be more recent exposures. So number one, you can get the test. Number two, you probably need a functional integrative doctor because many other docs won't know exactly what to order. But number three, back to our original conversation on this, I kind of assume that everybody walking in the door has some toxic load. And even though it is helpful to know lead and mercury are chelated differently than say mycotoxins or parabens or phthalates, some of the basic principles are this. Let me get real practical. Number one, sweating. Sweating is a wonderful way to increase our excretion of toxins, decrease our toxic load. So getting in the sauna, working out, sweating, all of those things are really powerful. Lymphatic drainage is another thing. So that's where cold plunge therapy or rebounding or lymphatic drainage massage or dry brushing or castor oil packs, all of these things are ways to enhance lymphatics. Supporting the liver is another thing. So things like milk thistle, N-acetylcysteine, R-lipoic acid, glutathione, all crucial to detoxification. And then, like I said earlier, the inputs are part of the problem. So if you start with all these fancy detox or you go to a Swiss clinic and do a two-week liver detox, these are wonderful, but you need to start by making sure you're 
drinking clean water, breathing clean air, and eating clean food. And at the core, those inputs make a huge difference in your toxic load. So clean air, clean water, clean food, sweating, moving, taking a few nutrients that help detox. Those are some of the ways that no matter what your toxic load, you can start to decrease it. Well said. I know you're such a vocal on mold toxicity. I got to have you back because that could be a whole show. We didn't really have time to dive into that. But real quickly, before we close out, these mold kits that you can order on Amazon, are they reliable or do you, should you call in a professional to see if someone has mold in their house? Ooh, that's a great question because I'm not even sure what they are on Amazon. I would say a professional can be expensive and a little tricky as far as just cost and stuff. What I usually recommend for patients is starting with a dust sample. So a dust sample will tell you kind of the history of your house or car or workplace. It's a really easy way for a consumer to do on their own. What you do is you get a Swiffer cloth. And if you look up ERMI, ERMI technology is not the best, but it's the name that you're going to find if you're Googling ERMI. Underneath that technology is a test called qPCR, qualitative PCR. So they're doing polymerase chain reaction in that dust to check for the DNA of mold. So it doesn't tell you if you have an active problem or an active water leak, and it doesn't tell you where it is, but it does tell you the history of your home or wherever you're testing to see if there are bad species like catomium or stachy. And I find it's one of the easiest ways for patients to kind of screen. Now then say you find in your, you know, you did your basement and you find a lot of catomium. Well, then you'd want to bring in an inspector. But it's a nice way to kind of start with something a little less expensive to give you some data to decide if you want to go further. That's true. This podcast is going to be a moldy but a goody in the future because people are going to come back to this and learn so much. I'm sure everybody took such good notes. In the minute we have left, anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners we didn't cover today? Maybe one last takeaway from your book, Unexpected. Well, the one thing you mentioned in your dig, I love that acronym, by the way, is God. And whether you believe in God or not, that belief in a higher power, a higher purpose, again, blue zones, whether you're religious or not, has even proven this is a key to longevity. So believing in something greater than ourselves is one of the key components that we didn't talk about. And I think you and I both agree, so crucial to living a long and vibrant life. Thanks so much for joining us. I've been looking forward to this. And like I said, it was so congruent. It's so nice to hear some of these views. I'm sure listeners take some, took some good notes on, on what you've said. And uh, the book is called Unexpected, Finding Resilience Through Functional Medicine, Science, and Faith. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. Hope everybody gets their copy. You can do that by going to jillcarnahan.com. And while there, be sure and check out the many resources that she has available, including articles, podcasts, and some great supplements. Be sure and sign up for her newsletters to stay up to date with all of Dr. Jill's latest in health news that you can use and you can follow her on Facebook at Flat Iron Functional Medicine on X she's at Doc Carnahan and on Instagram Dr. Jill Carnahan for my daily health post follow me at Dr. David Friedman except on Instagram I'm at Dr. D Friedman if you heard something today that somebody you know would benefit from hearing send them a link to this podcast it's available to goodhealthradio.com and radiomd.com and peruse our podcast library and share these segments as I always say share this with friends family coworkers and on social media, sharing is caring. Don't keep it to yourself. You can also subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, and iTunes. More to come. Stay tuned and stay well.